church. Let's make sure I don't bring all the cords down from the stage with me. <clears throat> Not the start we'd like. All right, we'll be almost finishing Malachi 2. If you've ever read your Bible and thought to yourself, These, this chapter break's weird. Because there's like one verse that's kind of like the next thought in the middle. Um, it's because, you know, later on we organized this stuff into chapters as best we could. And quite frankly, our best doesn't seem to always be good enough. So what we've got is the organization of the Bible as it is. But today we'll be almost finishing chapter 2, but not quite. There'll be one verse, but it's going to tie nicely into chapter 3. Uh, I'm guessing when Mike talks about that next week. So this week's sermon is called The Wages of Idolatry. I had trouble titling this. That wasn't anything that was just like you know, fix it church or something like that. But this, this is a passage directed at the church. We talked about the leaders last week, if you recall, and God really let them have it. Well, this week we're going to see those barrels turn from the leadership to the remainder. And uh, the, the spoiler alert about a debate like, or deb debate, a study like this is when we talk about things that are targeting leaders, and then we talk about things that are targeting the remainder, the leaders are part of the remainder. There is no remainder. Let's be honest. We are a church. I am an elder here, thus a leader, an overseer, along with Mike. But we are members of the church. So anything that applies to the membership applies to us. At this time, under this covenant, that wasn't necessarily the case. The overseers, the Levitical, the priests, had a different role in many regards and could do things that the congregation couldn't do and vice versa. But we don't have that problem today. It's actually simpler underneath the new covenant after what Christ has done. So whenever we talk about this, like, oh, this is for leaders, pay heed, because you just never know where the Lord is going to take you. But if it's talking about the congregation, even the leaders, pay heed. And I'm telling you, I will, <laughs> for what it's worth. Um, so we'll be uh, in Malachi near the very end of chapter 2, starting in verse 10 through uh, verse 16. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, read with. If not, it'll be up there on the screen. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? It was the one God, and, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's a lot to unpack in just a few short verses here. Lord, we're thankful for uh, Scripture that is challenging. I'm thankful for Scripture that is challenging. I'm thankful for Scripture that is thought-provoking. Uh, but today specifically, Lord, I'm thankful for Scripture that is new every time we read it. 
And that's not just some passages, that's all of it, Lord. I'm thankful for being able to read a passage that I've read before and um, find new information about you to be able to glorify you better, understand more fully what you would have us do here as a church, Lord. And today is one of those days. So I am thankful for today, especially today, Lord. Thanks for this time together. It's your sense of my pray. Amen. All right. So as I mentioned, leadership got their tongue lashing last week. God beat him up a little bit. He started at the top, putting leaders in their place. This is the reason, in many regards, if we want to fix something, you start at the source of the problem, and that's usually whoever's in charge. If they're not on board with any change you're going to make, it's going to be very difficult to make changes. Uh, clearly here, a precedent set by God, followed in many companies and things the world over today. This is a good place. Start at the top, put leaders in a place. But then, after that, is there anything else? Now, it could be that the leadership was the whole problem. In which case, God would have said something here like, hey, and the rest of you keep it up. You know, you're doing great work despite those boneheads in leadership. And I'm, I'm dealing with them. Don't worry about that. I'll be putting some feces on their faces. You heard the prophecy. But that's not what we see here. What we see here is the leadership and the remainder are all doing that which God would not have them do. Let's just put it that way. When I named this sermon The Wages of Idolatry, in nearly anything that seems errant to the Lord, it always is going to come back to idolatry. The notion that either we or something we believe in or something we hold valuable, something we really care about, family, friends, loved ones, jobs, statues, you name it, gets a place of prominence that we put as equal or above God. That is idolatry in a nutshell, and we're going to talk about that today. But there's another kind of idolatry where basically we don't necessarily put things above God, but we put them in an order that God did not ascribe to them because we think we know better than God. When we do that, even though we wouldn't say that we think we're better than God, we are in practice acting as if we're better than God. That's what we're seeing here. Maybe a little more than that here, to be frank, but it's clearly what's happening. There's many facets to this. To note, though, this is not the same accusation as leadership. As we study this, there are differences in the accusations God's making. It's not the same thing repeated, and the rest of you. God is rightly perturbed at their faithlessness, but take note of how their faithlessness is manifest. When we talked about the priests and what God had called out, these were folks designed to operate the temple, run God's church when it was very, very specifically described, every process and procedure was given to them in the law. They were taking that and throwing it out and doing their own thing, thus blaspheming God. They were getting rich. They were getting powerful. They were stealing from people, accepting dishonorable sacrifices, per performing the sacrifices with those dishonorable sacrifices. It was a complete and total train wreck in the worship of God as described by the priests of God. Here, these folks aren't priests. They're not Levitical priests. These are not Levites that he's addressing. That's not their role. So their worship of God is more indirect. Now, this seems maybe strange because here at our church, when we sing together, we say, hey, Rick, stand up and sing. Everyone stands and sings and worships God. We don't check your card. We don't check your lineage. We don't make sure that you're okay to be in here. How close to the stage are you? You can only be so far away. We don't tie ropes on the worship team. If I die up here, someone will come up here and deal with me. You won't drag me away from the pulpit and resuscitate me. They did that then because God said to. So we don't have that problem right now. But in this time... The people he's addressing now would not have gone into the temple 
were not responsible for performing these rites of, and, and procedures and processes that were part of worship of God as ascribed by God. They were separate. They were told to bring sacrifices. They were told to follow the law. Who were they told that by? Prophets and priests. It was in the word of God. They've grown up as a church, as a group of Israelites, as Jews practicing a very specific thing. If the rabbi says do it, we do it. It's from the word. Now we've got a rabbi saying to do things that are better for the rabbi. Some people caught wind of that and realized if I could tell the rabbi to do something that I think would be good, then they'll make it law, then I can make some money, and we'll work together. We're going to be co-blasphemers. But when it comes down to it, only the priests will get called out for priestly misfit. If you are not doing the job as priests, that's on you, priests, not the congregation, not the remainder of the Israelites. So y'all, when it comes to worshiping God, you can't, you're, you're pointing at the priest saying, well, they're the ones doing it wrong, and I can't fix it, God. I'm not allowed in there. God's like, right. Notice what we're talking about in this, this passage today. It's not, you guys aren't handling worship properly. Why? Because they don't do that. It's much different. And it starts with rhetorical questions. I love rhetorical questions. Questions that we know the answer to. They're an excellent tool to get people to walk through your line of thinking without them having to just be told the truth. Right? Water is wet. That's true. Right? But if we could ask it in a rhetorical way, maybe we could get to that place in a different manner. So what God is asking here are questions that they know the answer to. Do we not ha have we not all one Father? Yes. Has not one God created us? Yes. And then the HSV, if you ever see that, that's Hecox Standard Version. Then why are we treating it like, like garbage, just slapping our fathers in the face? Now you notice it's a different father. Yes, it's slapping God in the face because he doesn't want you doing that. But he's, he's trying to appeal to them in multiple facets here. Your relatives held these tenets to be true. They treated each other well, as God commanded them to do. They didn't lie and cheat and steal to one another. They were family. They were close-knit. The, the family of God. The people of God. All serving one Father, created by one God, as one people. And what you guys are doing is cheating and stealing and, and backbiting and sleeping with each other's wives and, 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 and harming each other financially and why are we doing this? Yes, it's an insult to God, and I think you know that, even though the priests maybe have told you it's okay, but certainly you know your parents would be mortified if they found out you were doing this. Heaven forbid your grandparents knew. Oh, can you imagine? If you think this is like, oh, it's kind of like, oh, lost, uh, I mean, I don't know where, where you grew up, but there's something around here where it's like, oh, I'm in trouble with who? The, the principal? That's fine. I'm going to call your parents. Now listen, hey. Let's do anything drastic. Hey, how do I make this right? There's a reason that works. If we lose sight of what authority is by something we don't necessarily feel that we're subject to, that's how they feel about God. They're kind of doing their own thing. What's God been up to lately? And all, 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 all. But if it comes to their parents, well, now that's totally different. God's appealing to, to, to as much as he can. Why are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? They knew this was important. They swore this to me. You throwing it right in the trash. And to solidify that, we see something here about a, a, a mysterious abomination. Now, we don't know what this is. You can bet 
it's distasteful. I don't, don't know, and I don't want to speculate too much, but we can talk about what we do know. In our world today, if I wanted to describe something that I found was really, really, really difficult, very, very bad, I might say something like, well, it was awful. I don't even want to say what it was, but it was awful. And you would immediately think, ooh, what was it? Let me see if I can figure out what it is. Do you, know, do you ever wonder why, why we do that? <laughs> I do that. Because we want to know. I want to know what it was. I want to know what it was. I know it was bad, but what was it? I don't want to do anything bad. So if I know exactly what it was, I could avoid that. These are the things I tell myself. But in reality, I just want to know. I want to know how bad it was. I want to know what that abomination is. That may be a temptation here, church. We see here Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Marrying the daughter of a foreign god sounds ominous. What kind of foreign god? What's going on here? But suffice it to say, what this abomination is, is clearly against God's law, probably against multiple laws, and I would say it's very severe, and it's likely direct idolatry. It's likely. When we say marrying the daughter of a foreign god, it's a small g. Obviously, God knows he's the only god. But a foreign god would be, you know, any, any myriad gods of the time, Baal, any number of these things, that, that, that we've got people who would call themselves sons and daughters of those gods. It could be a ruler in another country who had a daughter or, or several concubines. Who knows what's going on here? But basically... There's, there's an influence here, and when we see profaning the sanctuary of the Lord, it's a pretty good indicator that probably something has been brought into the temple that does not belong there. Perhaps a statue of a foreign god, perhaps a procedure that someone else uses in worship of another god, and they're not going to do that in the temple of the Lord and say, well, it's kind of for that god and for the Lord, but in reality, God has a very specific way in which this is to be handled. The people asked for this, got it, and are doing it. The priests are supposed to stop it, and they're culpable for that, but these folks are right in the thick of it. But if it's not direct idolatry, regardless, indirect idolatry is happening because they're aware of their transgressions. They know what's going on. They've been faithless. Abomination has been committed, profane the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, has married the daughter of a foreign god, may he cut off from the tents of Jerusalem any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. These filthy offerings that you bring back trying to buy God's good grace, the answer here is no, you are done. This degree of abomination cuts you off. That's not everybody. But many are participating. And even if they're not participating, they don't seem to be upset enough about it that God gives them any credit here. Judah has been faithless. When we talk about things in the modern world, uh, things like war crimes come to mind. Bad things. One person does a bad thing. The Holocaust. Horrific. There were people who orchestrated the Holocaust. Those people are obviously culpable. They're the ones that were there participating in it. And they might say things like, hey, I was under orders. Well, too bad. Following orders is one thing. Genocide is another. 
Think of it like that. <laughs> following orders, priests, following orders, congregants, following orders, Jews at large. That's one thing. But, but ignoring the law of God is another. If, if you are under orders, if you've been asked to do something then or now that is contrary to God's law, stop doing it. If you feel like it might be, but I'm not sure, find wise counsel. But don't find yourself here committing an abomination before the Lord that you probably knew was an abomination, but, you know, I didn't know how to stop it, and so many people were good, and it was good because they give us money. There's just a lot of positive things happening here. Knock it off. And then what we see here is God, uh, God turning it uh, yet again. So we, we've dealt with the abomination, and now we see uh, God saying, basically, don't complain about me not being there when you're not. They complain that God won't accept their offering, and they cry crocodile tears in protest of God's righteousness. How dare you? How could he not accept our offerings? But here what we see is God is well aware that while they demand the faithfulness of God, they ignore their covenant of faithfulness to their wives. Now notice what God's talking about now. You've brought an abomination in my temple. That's super bad. But the abomination involves marrying of foreign wives, this, that, and the other. But then when, I, when we talk about where, where your faithfulness lies and like maybe, maybe it's just slightly out of sync, no, it's not true. Because even these wives, you've abandoned them for some of these foreign ladies or some of this other idea. You complain that I'm not faithful, but look at you. You can't even be faithful to one another. He's already talked about that in friendship. Now you're not even being faithful to your wives. Is your marriage covenant meaningless? Here's where we get to the part that kind of blew my mind. Did God not make them one with a portion of himself? You might think, well, that's interesting, but that's not what the Word says. It's true. Here's what the Word says. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? That Spirit's capitalized. Did he not make them one with a portion of himself, an, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the union? If so... If that's true, and here we see that it is true, then disregarding your marriage is disregarding God himself. That portion that he's, he's poured into your marriage, if you forsake it, you forsake that, you forsake that portion of God. This is a big thing. This is a huge ordeal, what we're talking about here. Divorce was allowed at this time. Under certain circumstances, it was tolerable. God told Moses, it's okay. If you've got to do it, you've got to do it. But what we see Malachi talking about here in prophecy from God is that uh, I'm, 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 I'm clarifying for you the purpose and the point of marriage. It's not just something you do. It's not just a thing. It's not like uh, you're uh, getting older. Like, well, you turn you know, 20, it's time to be married, so just let's get married. There's, there's something here that's really, really important to God. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? What we see here is a call to divorce that it's not necessary or tolerable, but rather as an abuse of the law. Now, I want to make this very clear. Divorce was tolerated then. In God's word, there are provisions for divorce to be acceptably handled. I'll make it very clear. But what we see here is, that said, what are you going to do? If it's time to go and you're done and you've tried everything and it's, it is what it is, okay. But what we have here is not this case. We don't have uh, 
you know, well, my, my spouse is distant, and I want to make it work, but she won't call me back. Now, these are people that have given up on their spouse. They've just walked away. I'm just tired of it. I don't want to do it anymore. I'm taking a covenant that was infused with the Holy Spirit that I, I vowed to, 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 to preserve and care for, and I'm just going to jettison that. What, the reason God's talking about this is because it's an indicator of how they feel about God. If you can't stand by your spouse, whom I put together, you, you know, this is a special holy union, and you want to throw that away, well, then don't tell me you're going to be faithful to me, because you're not. You're already not. It starts there. Basically, do what you said you would do. That's both people, both parties, both streets, two-way street, however you want to phrase it. It's not you, or you're good and you're not. It's together. You made a covenant. Figure it out. If one won't, call and repent. If they give it up, they cheat, they leave, they won't call you back, they abandon you. We have divorce for that. But what they're doing is abuse of the law. Well, she abandoned me. Like, what do you mean? You sent her away. Well, right, but uh, she's not fulfilling her marriage duties. Nor could she, because you've, you've, you've kind of gained the system here. So now you're coming back asking for a divorce, so we're going to grant, because technically it's true, but... That's not what we're called to do. That's not what you were called to do then. That's not what we're called to do now. What we see here in Malachi, in the Old Testament, is a picture of marriage as something that God has constructed. And he tells us why. What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. I'm going to talk about this in the points to ponder in a bit. But like this, obviously, it is what you probably think it is. Two godly people have godly babies, godly offspring. There's a huge debate endlessly in the idea of should we baptize babies, how young, this, that, and the other. We see something here that's an interesting argument for the notion that God, in a union with the Holy Spirit infused, sees these offspring as godly in his eyes. That doesn't mean they're all saved, don't get me wrong. But the union, a godly union, ought to produce godly offspring. A union anointed with the Holy Spirit may produce offspring that are in some manner anointed with the Holy Spirit. That's what God wants. That's what He has designed us to do. Will everybody have godly offspring? No. Will people adopt offspring and they become godly? Yes. Because godly offspring isn't always about birth. That's where the facets take off. That's where this verse becomes mind-blowing. But it starts in a union. Why do we have marriage? I'm skipping ahead. Points to ponder. <laughs> Our faith in God is manifest in how we treat others. Our faith in God is manifest in how we treat others. Uh, number two, our faith in God is manifest in how we obey God. As we go through this list, you might be like, well, I'm good with the first two, but the third one, I don't know. What we find here is our faith in God is manifest, spoiler alert, in many ways. They're all critical. Third, our faith is manifest in how we love our spouses. And finally, our faith in God is manifest by the power of the Holy Spirit. I put that last for a reason. I want that to be the resonance, the resonance after, this, after I'm done talking. That yes, our faith is manifest in how we treat others, how we obey God, how we follow His commands, and how we love our spouses, who, by the way, would be part of the others I mentioned in bullet one. But our faith in God comes from God. This is not a show. Our faith in God is not manifest in how we pretend to feel about others, thus treat them outwardly. 
It's how we treat others. How do I feel? How is that actually going in my brain? Let's start at the top. Our faith in God is manifest in how we treat others. If you claim to love the Lord and treat other people like garbage, check yourself. I think we could almost refute that first statement. If you say, oh, I love God with my whole heart, but this guy over here, I'd kill him if I could. Ooh, careful. You think God feels that same way about him? You think God's ready to condemn him? You confident in that? Because if not, you may want to circle the wagons on that first part a little bit. Figure out why you say you love the Lord, but you hate the people that he has sent you to witness to, to spread the good news, and you want them destroyed. You want them gone. You want them out of your life. I'll, say, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, church, there are people in this world that drive me up a wall. I find them difficult to be around. I find them selfish and intolerable in many regards. There are people that feel that way about me. I know that too. We, as believers, that claim to have faith in God, need to be on our faces in the Word, whatever it takes to figure out how that part of us can be ripped away, replaced, renewed, regenerated, with a love for all people, the saved and the lost, that is godly. Really godly. It doesn't look godly. It doesn't, doesn't look pristine, but is godly. It also doesn't mean that we tolerate abuse and can't defend ourselves. Treating other people well does not mean getting ground to powder by them. We have jobs to do. It's okay to speak the truth. It's okay to defend yourself against accusations and attacks. It's okay to leave situations where you are being abused physically, emotionally, mentally. Work those things out. Find other people. Find godly counsel that can help you figure out how to handle these sorts of things biblically. But it isn't, uh, it isn't this passive namby-pamby existence where everybody's okay and I'll take whatever you've got and I, I perpetually just turning the other cheek or something on those lines. It's good to understand what God would call us to do, but as we see other people that are just being intentionally abusive, that aren't coming at us with any sort of a, a directive to understand our faith or pick it apart or make us look foolish, or, then, then we treat others well sometimes by defending them. It does mean that we don't harbor ill will or intentions. This is where the rubber meets the road, and I can tell you this from my experience. Yes, I too would love for all people to come to Christ, but there are some people that I have a really hard time participating in that process with. They're, it's difficult. I wouldn't say that I harbor ill will or intentions, but my actions and my absence in their life or my lack of communication with them would probably seem that if I believe what I say I believe and I'm unwilling to share with them the good news, then... Clearly, there's some degree of ill will. This is where we, as a church, as a people of God, really need help. The world knows very clearly what many Christians hate. And if you ask them what they love, instead of saying Jesus or God, they'll probably say, I don't know. Church, it breaks my heart that there are people out here that are lost doing lost things, and here we stand as the bastions, the arbiter, the guardians of the truth, and they don't dare step in here because they're afraid we will chastise them for being lost, which we all were once upon a time. 
if not for God. We have got to do better. This is especially true inside the church family. If we can't even treat the people inside this building or this church family well, there is no hope to go outside the walls. I remember people say before, as much as I see churches fighting, I can do that with my family and friends. Well, you're not wrong. <laughs> but I guess Jesus plus, like, it's fighting and arguments, but with Christ. Like, well, well, no, thank you. Like, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. Our faith in God is manifest in how we treat others. Likely, likewise, our faith in God is manifest in how we obey God. Treating people well and doing what we want, treating people well and, or using what we want as a vehicle to help treat people well, also really a bad idea. If leadership's letting us down, we must obey God. Here what we see is God is, the first thing he calls them out for is an abomination. Right? Yeah, this is a big deal here, y'all. Fix it. The leadership may be tolerating it, but you've got to know the truth. In order to know God, in order to obey God, we must know his commands. In order to know his commands, we must study his word. In order to study his word, we must read his word. We have to be going. This is on all of us. And like our treatment of others, it matters. If you're just saying that I'm saved and that this is, I've got faith and that's that, but it's not manifesting in obedience and it's not manifesting in treating others well and it's not manifesting in treating your spouse well, it may, there may even be nothing there to manifest. Well, how dare you tell me that I don't have faith? Like, I'm not telling you you don't have faith. That's God telling you that. This is God's word. I'm not making this up. I didn't scratch my head last night and say, you know what, I bet, I'll bet if we treat others badly, that reflects badly on God. I'm going to say that in the sermon. It's here in the word. It's here in the word. We just read it right out of Malachi. It's on all of us. We cannot love God and live in disobedience, period. You can't do it. Will you disobey God? Have you? Yes. Will you do it again? Probably yes. Now, I say probably because maybe, just maybe, you'll get a lucky switch flip and stop sinning. And the <laughs> good on you. But also, don't be deceived by that. Chances are you're not there. The reality is we will disobey. But there's a difference between disobeying and living in disobedience. We oftentimes use the term slave to sin. That's what that means. Am I just done trying? Am I just finished? Is this, is this, the sin runs too deep. You know, if God won't take it, I'll just live with it. I'm gonna, and when, I say, when I say live with it, I mean enjoy it. And I mean participate and engage with it. Over and 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 over. Forever. Until I'm gone. Then I'll blame God. Church, if that resonates with you, as it resonates with me, we got to fix it. I cannot love God and live on disobedience, period. Day, tomorrow is another day we try it again. God, I'm sorry, still. I hate myself, still. God, I know I'm the only one struggling with this. Hey, spoiler alert, no, you're not. Listen to Paul. Read David's writings. Here's a couple gentlemen that I think as a church we hold in rather high esteem. Both of them said things like, just kill me, God. Or... I do what I hate, and I hate what I do. As far as he, he was in the Bible go for me, Christ aside, any form of God aside, it's Paul. I love Paul. I love the way he writes and thinks. I love his redemption arc. But here's a guy who lived most of his life in prison after he was saved, wrote letters, built churches, fostered people along, constructed what we use as basically the entire basis of theology, serious science of God from the Bible. He did all that. 
and all the way to the end complained about a thorn in his side that God wouldn't take away, and he hates what he does, and he does what he has. And I think, how can that be? How can this guy not be hovering around the prison, casting doors out of his way? But I'm, I am Paul. Did you hear the word? I've constructed theology. People will be talking about this for thousands of years. What does he say? I hate what I do. I do what I hate. And I think, hey, that's me. <laughs> hey, Paul, I feel that way. And what that tells me is it was never about Paul, just like it was never about me. My obedience to God will come from God. And I confess that I am disobedient to God, and I try again tomorrow, and God will little by little say, that thorn stays, but this one I'll take. I'll take these two and give you these four into prison, but somehow free in your mind, sick and infirm, but also blessed beyond measure. How can this work out? Well, this is what obedience is. The wages of idolatry are loneliness and isolation and hopelessness. The wages of obedience are mind-blowingly peace, calm, fulfillment. If you wonder why David and Paul, despite these things, continue to serve God, it's because they understood God. Our faith in God is manifest how we love our spouses. If you've ever wondered about God's role in marriage, wonder no more. I think this passage, I've read this a number of times, but this bit here, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? I read it anew. <laughs> As I'm putting this together, I'm thinking to myself, now wait a minute. This isn't just a covenant. This is, and there is a covenant. Don't get me wrong. Vows, this is all very important. Covenants are really, really important. I'm gonna, that's my fourth bullet, right? But in this case, what we have is a covenant made before God and with God. God is in the marriage with a portion of the Spirit in the union. Now, we could debate this and, and say, well, what is it in it? Is what it really translates to? What does that mean? Could it just be in the, in the notion? Or Fine. If you want to go down that road, that's okay. But what we're really trying to dodge is this bullet that I'm in a marriage that maybe I'm frustrated with, and I can't bear the idea that God's in the midst of this. I don't get it. I hate it. I'm tired of it. I want it over. I want a divorce. I want to try it again. And if you tell me that God's here and that we did this covenant and I meant it, and I, I, I kind of did mean it, but I don't want to mean it anymore. I want to be, I want to be broken of it. Answer is, uh, careful. <laughs> careful. Don't put yourself above God. Don't put your desires above God. Maybe God knows best. Maybe God being in your marriage, maybe a, a drop of the Spirit in, in your marriage is enough to completely restore your marriage. Spoiler alert. It is enough. And why? Because God wants godly offspring. Does this mean kids? Yeah. Does it mean believers in the church? Yeah. If you find two people in the church, talk to uh, Mike and Leah sometime. Their story is wonderful. But you have two people who were believers before they met been through relationships hither and thither, as it were, looking for a spouse, no answer from God for a while, strong in belief, growing in Christ, doing church things, participating in the kingdom, meet, marry, a portion of the Spirit is in their union, and now they are more godly and better servants because of it. Now they may disagree or say, well, technically, uh, but it's true. 
But it's, it makes sense that they would be. And it's not like, well, then i got to get married to be a better servant. No. But if you do, and you covenant with the Lord, expect it. This is why God gets frustrated with divorce. This is why God gets frustrated when these men marry foreign women that don't have God and take no covenant. Because he cannot get himself involved like he wants to. He won't get himself involved like he wants to because the marriage is not holy. But they don't have kids, biological kids. But Mike teaches. Leah teaches. Their union is producing godly offspring that is more than biological kids. It's the truth. Married people serving together in churches, talking to other Christians, talking to youth, talking to other families, other young believers that think, I can't ever find anybody that I'll love. I'll never be married. Don't give up. Look at us. Keep, keep the faith. Stay the course. Follow God. Seek Christ. Watch what happens. Folks, that's godly offspring. I say it's, multi, it's so multifaceted that it blows my mind because it does. It's not just about having kids and checking the box. I like I got three godly offsprings. I've got one. She's in the booth. What do you want, God? It's more than that. It's more than that. But also more than that, if you're an awful spouse, expect God to repay that to you. Now, he may not. You're going to read, hear countless stories of uh, absolute scumbags that instead of getting what they deserve, got saved. <laughs> Which means the repayment due them, Christ paid for. Payment was due. But for some, Christ pays. In this case, who God's talking to? They need to straighten up and fly right. Because if you wait too long, if you delay this inevitably, if you don't believe, if you play games with God, there's a saying that uh, I like. It says, uh, play stupid games and win stupid prizes. You dance, you dance in this circle for too long and treat your spouse like trash and keep putting God off when you know better. Don't be surprised when the hammer comes crashing down. You want the rod? This is, this, we talk about the rod and the staff and, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. No, no, no. The, the reality of this is there's a rod that we are well aware of that God holds in his hand. Be nice to your spouse. If you do not, I'll hit you with this. Well, uh, the heck with my spouse. Bam. Oh, God, how could you? I told you I would. If you want the rod, I'll give you the rod. Anybody ever heard anything like this growing up? I sure did. Do you want spanked? Well, no. Because if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to get spanked. Okay. Then I do it, and then I get spanked, and I'm like, how could this have happened to me? I couldn't have seen it coming. I could, there wasn't a thing I could do about it. It's all clear as crystal here. Beloved covenants are important. They matter. If you covenant with somebody, especially if you bring God into the middle of it, you better see it through. You better figure out a way to see it through. That's what God's really saying here. Do what you said you would do. If you treat your spouse poorly and claim to love God, you're in hot water. Finally, our faith in God is manifest by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the big one. If you've thrown your hand up at the first three points and said, I, I, I've tried. I've done everything. I can't make it work with my wife. I can't make it work with my husband. I can't make it work with my kids. I, I can't stand my church, my family, my friends, and my job. It's all a mess. I try so hard not to sin. I just keep sinning again and again and again and again. I've got good news. You are not capable of doing this on your own. And maybe you're thinking, oh, that, <laughs> I was looking for a little uh, tip or trick here. Now you're telling me just give up? Yeah, that's fair. 
You ever heard of the saying, let go and let God? It's trivial. It's hard to, it's, it's flippant and overused. But there comes a point when you cannot do it. When you are holding on to your abilities or things that you've put together that you're just confident are going to fix it this time for you. And eventually you have to stop doing that. You have to let God do it in your life. You have to trust God. You don't let go, but you grab onto God. There's a, a, a wonderful song that's based on Scripture about, about, about uh, you know, the robe, the hem of Christ. If I could just touch his hem, that's in Scripture. There's a song that they talk about swinging your robe down low. Get way down here, God. I can't even stand up. I can't even raise my arms off the ground. I'm so tired. But if I could just grab your robe, I know it's going to get me back up. That's what I'm telling you right now, church. The notion of the bit of the Holy Spirit being implanted into a marriage is wonderful. There's a bit of that robe in the marriage that can be woven into a whole new wedding gown, a whole new tuxedo that's spotless. If you trust that bit, if you trust the Holy Spirit instead of ourselves, God demands all this to remind us that we need Him. That's the whole driving force here. God does not want a bunch of well-mannered automatons. He wants faithful believers. Those other, th those other things will come on their own in time, or they won't. And you'll stand before God saying, I, I did my honest best. You know, there were things that plagued me to the very end, and I'm ashamed of them still. Yet God might say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You ran the race, you kept the faith. It's not you ran the race, and you never cursed. <laughs> it's, it's faith that matters. The other stuff comes from that. So what about us? Look at how God cares about how we treat others, not just him. That's all we've been talking about today. Be nice to each other. Be nice to your spouse. Obey God, yes. But don't give God lip service and then steamroll the world around you. Saying the right things and doing the right things don't matter if they're for the wrong reasons. If you're trying to look good, if you're trying to want to appear that you care for your spouse, but you don't, figure out why you don't. Learn to care. God will help you. We can help you pray and, and fast and find Scripture and meditate and study. It will change your heart. It will change your mind. Your attitudes can shift towards somebody you've been married to for 15 or 20 years and you feel isolated and alone. I, I can't make it work. God can. And we need to treat everything we do as an act of worship. Easier said than done. And some of you are probably thinking, well, some of the stuff I do, I don't think how it can be worship. Well, then maybe don't do that. Right? If you like to go out and uh, scare kids or key cars or terrorize the elderly, knock that off. That's not going to be an act of worship, no matter how you do it. So stop. And if you're struggling with certain things that you know aren't an act of worship and you're doing them in secret and you're, uh, I can't even imagine, start today. Down. Lord, I hate it. I'm sorry. Help me change in this regard. If you have to do it again tomorrow, do it again tomorrow. If you do it every day till you're off the earth, do it every day. I will be shocked if it doesn't in any way change before you're dead. Shocked. Shocked, I tell you. Shocked. It will improve. We worship God with every word we say to one another and our spouses. That is good. This is me preaching to myself here. A little sarcasm here and there, a little joke here and there. That's okay. I'm kind of a... I'm a joker. I kid around a lot. But there comes a point when it's not funny. We see some joking here. And the word, God jokes with people occasionally. This is true. But anyway, 
if every word we say is supposed to be an act of worship, then if we're going to cut somebody down, if we're going to scream at them in anger, if we're going to pour wrath out of our mouth across our tongues into their lives, that's going to be a tough sell for godly worship. And if somebody turns to you and says, I thought you were a Christian, be ready to say, you're right, and I am sorry, or, but what I said I had to say. I had to say it the way I said it, and I'll tell you why. I can defend it biblically. But, beloved, if you're anything like me, a lot of times I've, I've said stuff before I've even thought about it. Hard to worship when I don't even know what I'm doing. Call to action. If you've sown seeds of discord, tear those weeds up today. With church members, neighborhood, friends, family, your spouse, it's not too late. If you're hearing my words today, it's not too late. I'm telling you that right now. It's not too late. People may have told you it's too late. The other person may have told you it's not too late. It can be mended. If you're involved in an abomination of any kind, knock it off today. If you have no regard for your spouse, repent of that and beg their forgiveness today. And finally, if you don't know Jesus and you don't have the Holy Spirit, surrender today. None of this is possible. None of what God is asking of them and what I'm telling you that we want to be doing as a church is possible without God in your life. But today is the day. If you're tired of the rat race, if you just want some peace, if you just want some peace, I've got peace for you in the name of Jesus Christ. Today's the day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for verses that are made new on reread and reread and reread, Lord. Lord, I pray if, if, if little else we come away here with a couple things. One is that you will do all that needs doing, Lord. All the power, all the goodness, all the joy, all the impact that we would ever have that's long-lasting and eternal will come from the work of your Spirit in our lives, Lord. And, uh, and, and right there along with it, Lord, is the idea that we have your Word, a wealth of knowledge uh, of you, of what you would have us do, uh, and instructions for peaceful living, instructions for caring for one another in a godly way. And then we can turn to a book that we've probably read a hundred times and a passage we've probably read 500 times and reread it and see something in there that we have never seen before, Lord. If little else, help us to understand that uh, our, our simple, feeble minds, as much as we may think we understand about you, Lord, there's more to learn. And to help us to find joy in that, joy in studying your word as the number one thing that we can do to make our time on this earth better. Not just for us and living more comfortably, Lord, but for you and the world around us to be able to fulfill our mission more effectively. I'm so thankful for your word, Lord. Thankful for this church body. It's your Sunday, my prayer. Amen.